Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. On Valentine's Day, a suicide attack in Kashmir killed 49 members of India's Central Reserve Police Force. Since then, a series of high-stakes attacks have unfolded between the two nuclear powers, India and Pakistan. India bombed inside Pakistan. Pakistan downed an Indian aircraft and returned an Indian pilot. And, of course, there was intermittent shelling across the line of control, the border between India and Pakistan inside of Kashmir. Let's take stock of where we're at with Vali Nasser. He's dean of the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C., and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Good to talk with you, Vali Nasser. Thank you. I wanted to say... I wanted to say something about Kashmir to um, start off because it's been a flashpoint for forever since independence between India and Pakistan. Um, and yet the ball never moves on, on Kashmir and we can forget about it in headlines in this country for years at a time. And then all of a sudden there it is again. Why, why doesn't anything ever change about Kashmir? Well, Kashmir is the unfinished business of the partition of India, and and that itself was an unhappy uh, outcome of uh, the end of British colonialism. Uh, India essentially broke up into two countries. There millions of people died. Borders were disputed. And, and the legacy of partition still hangs over both India and in particular Pakistan. It colors their relations. And Kashmir, in a way, is is the sort of the uh, is the gaping wound of that of that unfinished business of the creation of these two countries, all the way back in 1947. And it seems like there's nothing anyone can do about it right now. And, and India, you know, plops itself down with uh, half a million security forces inside Kashmir, and Pakistan devotes an enormous portion of its budget every year to military issues to to, to defend uh, Kashmir. It's just it's stuck in such a spot that there seems to be no negotiating it. Well, that's largely because the, the, the two countries don't have really normal relations. Yes, they have embassies in one another's capitals, but, but they already have been in a situation of Cold War all the way uh, since 1947. And they can't resolve a border dispute in that kind of a circumstance. Uh, Kashmir has meant a lot more to Pakistan than is meant to India, uh, just because of the its strategic location and its meaning for Pakistan's sense of its own security and and the way it sees India, but in the past two decades, uprisings in Kashmir have have uh, also focused India on the valley. But still, looking at the huge uh, geography of India, Kashmir is a small part of that country. It's not it's not a, a big enough an issue to force the Indian government to resolve it. And ultimately, you can't resolve Kashmir uh, without resolving the, the broader India-Pakistan Cold War. Uh, one, let's talk about what has happened here in recent days. And um, from the outside, it looks like um, these groups that operate inside of Kashmir, they don't often resort to suicide bombings like the one we saw that killed 49 people. Um, did that say anything in particular to you? Well, you know, uh, terrorist groups keep innovating and learning from one another. So suicide bombing is now becoming much more ubiquitous with all, all of these extremist groups all the way from Syria to Afghanistan and, and now Kashmir. I think the problem 
in Kashmir is that uh, terrorist groups uh, have a safe haven in Pakistan, the same way as the Taliban have enjoyed the safe haven in Pakistan. At the same time, the heavy-handed way in which India is handling Kashmir creates a rife position for these terrorist groups to find support on the ground. India blames all the problems in Kashmir on Pakistan. The Pakistanis claim that they have nothing to do with it. But there's no doubt that the Pakistanis see advantage in, in India being bogged down in Kashmir, and they see advantage in, uh, in essentially keeping the Kashmir issue alive. Indians, on the other hand, cannot resolve Kashmir because they won't engage Pakistan on it. So as a result, we have a security situation in Kashmir that, that is constantly threatening uh, global security because at any point in time it can get out of hand, as it just did uh, in the last month, and, and create a much bigger security issue. From the outside, it doesn't look like India's response was very uh, effective or deft. They did this bombing inside of Pakistan that didn't seem to hit anything. They made claims about it that weren't true. Uh, they got this plane shot down in a dogfight. They didn't look very good there. Um, how do you and, and it all folded into the Indian political campaign and Narendra Modi. Modi's doing all this grandstanding inside of India. And his poll numbers are going up, even though it doesn't seem like uh, India did a really smooth job here. Well, there is no doubt that on the Indian side, two things are at play. One is that generally uh, uh, Prime Minister Modi has had a much more nationalistic and jingoistic foreign policy, especially vis-a-vis -vis Pakistan. And that itself creates a situation in which he is compelled to, to respond to any kind of a provocation and respond very effectively. Secondly, he is in an election year and he's not necessarily doing as well as it was expected. And therefore, he's very sensitive to uh, this issue becoming a, a black eye for him during the election. Now, I think the first part, this was deliberate not to hit anything. I think both uh, the Indians wanted to show uh, uh, their, their constituents in, in, in Pakistan, in, in India, that they have done something to respond to the Pakistani, what they see as Pakistani provocation, but they re really didn't want to hit anything that would, that would lead to war. So they claimed that they had killed 300 terrorists. The, the, the Pakistanis claimed that that wasn't true. So you essentially had a situation where both countries were claiming big things without actually having done anything. It, it allowed both sides to climb down the tree and not lose face. And then came this dogfight, and, and, and the Pakistanis exaggerated, uh, it seems, uh, at least the evidence shows that only one plane was shot down. They claimed that there were two, and it's still very unclear where the dogfight happened. The Indians claimed it happened in Indian territory. The, the, the Pakistanis claimed that it happened in Pakistani territory. But, but the fact that the Pakistanis were able to sh shoot down a, an, an Indian plane cl clearly gave them the advantage in the news media and the news cycle. And that put additional pressure on uh, Prime Minister Modi. And again, on the campaign trail, he has no option but to but to appear very belligerent. But I think right now, the Pakistanis, by, by releasing this pilot, created a situation where at least the, the conflict does not look to be escalating uh, by events on the ground. 
I'm talking with Vali Nasser. He's dean of the Johns Hopkins School of International Studies, and we're talking about what's been happening with India and Pakistan and Kashmir. And coming up later, we're going to talk about some legislative developments in India that look counterproductive on transgender issues and the displacement of millions of indigenous people. Stay with us. Um, from Pakistan's point of view, uh, Imran Khan looked pretty good giving up the pilot. Uh, they do say they are going to have a crackdown on some of the extremist groups who um, people say are responsible here. Uh, does Pakistan really have to crack down right now because of pressure from the United Nations or China or um, or other other? Uh, entities rather than just India? Well, I think the Pakistanis have been uh, at least a little bit more forward-leaning in, in cracking down on extremists over the past year. These have included in carry-out operations in Punjab and in Northwest Frontier Province against uh, some of the Taliban groups. Uh, and also there is seems to be a mood in Pakistan that they, they aren't much more interested in opening up with India than was the case in the past. And we're seeing the, uh, uh, Pakistan also collaborating much more openly with the United States on reconciliation with the Taliban in Afghanistan. Now, this all is positive news, but clearly this attack on Kashmir suggests that Pakistan has not gone far enough. In other words, it has to really uh, 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 clean, clean house on its border on India in order to uh, be credible that, that, that it's not actually uh, supporting terrorism within India. Now, I, I'm sure there are those in the Pakistan military who think of some of the, these groups as, as assets against India, you know, as these groups put pressure on the Indian military in Kashmir. But I think what happened this past month shows that this is an extremely risky strategy. That, you know, terrorist groups that you might think may have some tactical advantage on the ground could all of a sudden uh, create a situation that, that can get out of hand and, and, and become a, a nuclear threat. And also something else happened in this crisis, which is very notable. In the past, when India and Pakistan got into a heightened tension, the United States usually used to step in very quickly to defuse tension. This happened under President George H.W. Bush. And most famously, it happened under President Clinton when Pakistan provoked a, a standoff in Kargil uh, uh, in, in that Kashmir region. And it looked like the two countries were going to go to war. And President Clinton stepped in to, to find a way to defuse tensions. This time, the United States did not step in in any meaningful way. So I think both sides found out that if they get themselves into a tense position, they're on their own. And they better watch it because you can't just sort of escalate tensions and say, well, uh, you know, the United States is going to handle it. Uh, for varieties of reasons, this didn't happen this time. And I think that's a good thing because it p puts the burden of uh, responsibility for managing border tensions and managing this Cold War on the two protagonists. How would you describe what the Trump administration's strategy here? Was it deliberate? Was it neglectful? I saw a US, former U.S. ambassador to Pakistan praise the Trump administration for using quiet diplomacy, and uh, President Trump said that, he, that they were uh, trying to simmer things down. Uh, what, what happened there? Well, that level of quiet diplomacy always happens, but that does not really give the United States any credit for actually having had an active role 
in in pulling pulling them apart. We have no evidence of President Trump getting on the telephone with the prime ministers of the two countries. There's no special envoy that was sent to the two countries. There was no public pressure that the United States put on the two sides. And there are varieties of reasons for this, including that the U.S. was busy with with its North Korea summit, that, that generally the State Department and the foreign policy apparatus of the Trump administration really is not working at full capacity, both in terms of personnel and where their focus is. And therefore, they, they really didn't, uh, either by omission or commission, didn't get involved. So I would not give the Trump administration any credit here. I think if there are, if there, if there are others who, who, are, who are to be credited for quiet diplomacy, it's perhaps China or, or maybe Saudi Arabia, countries that actually do have certain leverage with the Pakistanis in particular that may have stepped in and, and at least provided political cover for Imran Khan to do uh, what he did. But, but I actually think the U.S. US, has, uh, US was absent in this, in this, uh, in this crisis. But, but as I said, that may actually, there may actually be a silver lining to that. In other words, don't count on the United States to prevent nuclear war. If you don't want to have nuclear war, you, you have to take responsibility for that on your own. I wanted to say something about uh, nuclear deterrence and the limits or successes of nuclear deterrence in this instance. How do you rack it up? Because uh, while they did fight, they fought in this way that was, as you describe it, limited. Uh, did nuclear deterrence win again here or not? Well, it did, but, but, but it also showed that it's not foolproof. In other words, that that the two sides may get into and may get into a dogfight over one another's skies, and that domestic pressure, particularly in election year or a government that feels that it needs to be jingoistic, could actually add pressure. And once you get into a tit for tat, uh, it is very easy for it to then get out of hand, and and we could have uh, ended up in a much more dangerous situation. And even if you hadn't ended up in a nuclear conflict this time, you might have got uh, the two sides coming out of this standoff with greater determination to now uh, get the upper hand in a nuclear uh, stand uh, in a nuclear balance in order to have leverage. And I already think one of the outcomes of this current crisis is that India is now going to pay a lot more attention to upgrading its military. Uh, you know, the, the the Indian Air Force has for a long time been the butt of jokes that it that is antiquated that uh it's its air force is 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 no longer up to snuff uh and i think now uh there's even more pressure on it to 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 build a much more effective air force if the indians go down that path then you know that also will have an impact on on the security balance in the region it could make things more dangerous now, the U.S. has sold F-16 jets to Pakistan and restricted their usage. And if this was a F-16 that shot down this Indian warplane, that would be a violation of this agreement. But nobody seems to know. The Indian government seems to be showing evidence that it was an F-16. Uh, does the U.S. still have some kind of uh, role here? Well, you know, each country is going to claim that that that, that they that they were engaged in this dogfight for defensive reasons, and that's the that's how ultimately the reason you give countries uh, uh, weapons in order to defend themselves. You never sell countries weapons in order to be on the offensive. So Pakistanis claim that the dogfight did not happen on their soil, and they were responding to an intrusion by 
Indian planes. The Indians claimed that the dogfight happened on their soil, trying to suggest that the Pakistanis had used the F-16s for offensive purposes. But the reality uh, uh, right now is that Pakistan has F-16s and the Indians had to use MiG-21s, which at least is two generations older than than the F-16s, and therefore uh, the, the inferiority showed in the dogfight. Now, if the Indians come out of this conflict thinking that they need to upgrade their air force, then you might have the beginning of an arms race uh, in the region that would not be for, good for the two countries' economies, number one, but also could make the security situation much more uh, precarious. Do you think that the big loser here is the people who live in India-administered Kashmir, that they're going to see – I mean, I don't know how much more security you can have in a place, but they're going to see a more of a security crackdown? I think the biggest losers here are the pe- the largest, the people of the two countries. These are two of the largest countries in Asia, and, and uh, essentially this uh, hangover of the partition – uh, continues to uh, decide the, the the pace of their economic development, their security structure. Uh, the fact that these two countries don't have any trade relations among them makes both of them poorer. And 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 I think again we've seen that that the fact that they can't get past what happened in 1947 uh, uh, remains a problem. I mean, the, the, uh, the, I think ultimately Pakistan even more so than India, needs peace peace with its neighbor in order to move on and to grow its economy. But you're right. I mean, I mean, Kashmir is likely to become even more of a contested issue. And uh, the Indians are going to focus a lot more on transborder terrorism. The Pakistanis are going to try to f- focus much more on Indian repression uh, in the valley. And, uh, and it remains to be seen how does Prime Minister Modi... Uh, begin to behave once the election is done. I, I wouldn't think anything is going to change until the vote is done. He, he really cannot think of any conciliatory policy, either in Kashmir or vis-a-vis Pakistan, or changing his track until, until he's done with the election. Vali Nasser is dean of the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C. He's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about India and Pakistan. Thank you. Coming up, we're going to talk about some legislative developments in India that look counterproductive on transgender issues and on the displacement of millions of indigenous people. Stay with us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. 
India's Supreme Court ordered state governments to evict over a million indigenous people from their homes in the forest last month. It's being called the biggest eviction in the name of conservation ever. With me to talk about it is Sophie Grigg. She's a senior researcher and campaigner for Survival International. They protect the rights of indigenous people the world over. Thanks for joining me, Sophie. Well, it's a pleasure. I wonder if you could explain, um, go right back to the beginning here, and this whole case in the Indian Supreme Court was about something called the Forest Rights Act that was passed in 2006. What is the Forest Rights Act? Why, why, why was it in court? Well, the Forest Rights Act is a, an act that sought to um, redress the historic injustice faced by indigenous people in India. And so it's recognize their rights to live in the forests and it recognized uh, both individual community and habitat rights so varying areas of 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 rights but this has been um the forest rights act was opposed by conservationists right from the start um a, a lot of conservation organizations objected to it they they saw um this as a sort of land grab by indigenous peoples rather than seeing it obviously as the historic injustice being rectified and the recognition of, of the rights that they have under international law and, and rights they have from having lived there for time immemorial. So um, unfortunately, a number of conservation organizations submitted uh, challenges in the Supreme Court uh, 10 years ago now uh, against the Forest Rights Act, challenging its legality um, uh, and filing all sorts of challenges. And they've ended up in, in, in a sort of strange way, sort of molded together that the court basically just grouped them all together. And this has been the outcome of, of the most recent one of those hearings. Um, what happened in February was the um, the the, the court case was heard again. There was a court hearing and the central government with the Ministry of Tribal Affairs, which is supposed to represent and, and defend the tribal peoples who, who live in India, um, failed to even speak out. It, it completely just it spoke, said nothing during the court hearing, allowing the conservationists basically to convince the court that um, – there were more than a million, and it's not people, it's household, um, who'd had their claims rejected. So what happens in the process is, is tribal people and, and other traditional forest dwellers have to make an application and it's, they have to submit sort of documents and they, they submit it first to the village council and then to a number of committees. Um, and, and usually, often what happens is this is manipulated by the forest department, which doesn't want to give away you know, in its mind, give away forest that it, it controls. Um, and so vast numbers of these have been rejected, these applications. And what the conservationists in this case were arguing was that all of those households who'd had their claims rejected, which added up to at least 8 million people, we believe, not a million, that was... Um, Sure, that was just the number of households. Um, so up to 8 million people. And, and the conservationists basically argued these people must be evicted straight away and and the court because no one was sticking up for the indigenous people there were no indigenous people invited to defend themselves the government didn't come and argue the the court basically said okay well within the next four months everybody has to be evicted by july um the states right. have to evict all of these people i mean it's astonishing that it was able to happen 
I'm talking with Sophie Griggs. She's a senior researcher and campaigner for Survival International, and we're talking about the Indian Supreme Court decision to evict over a million households of indigenous people from the forest. And um, why exactly uh, did the government not show up at this trial in the Ministry of Tribal Affairs? It would seem like it's their job to go in there and <laughs> defend the, the government. Was there some kind of strategy? Was somebody well, aiming for mineral rights in the forest or were they in league with the environmentalists? I don't get it. Well, no. I mean, it's difficult to comprehend, isn't it, how a ministry whose entire job it is to protect the rights of, of the indigenous peoples in, in their country could be so negligent and, and actually so complicit in, in this attempt to, to take their land away from them. Unfortunately, the current government under, under um, Narendra Modi has been very anti tribal people's rights, um, actually very business, very pro-business um, f- throughout the whole of the parliament. And they have been trying to weaken the, the, the power of the Forest Rights Act. They've, they've tried to weaken it in a number of ways. They've, um, they've given a lot of power to the forest department. And so it's actually been a, a sort of ongoing problem with this current government that they've been very anti the Forest Rights Act and been trying to weaken it. So I think it wasn't just negligence. I think it was actual sort of complicity within the government to use this case to try and weaken the Forest Rights Act, which which they don't like. And what about the environmental groups, the, the Wildlife First, the Wildlife Trust of India, the Tiger Research and Conservation Trust? They accuse tribal people, indigenous people, of destroying the forest's biodiversity, and they think that they're um, harming uh, the land. Is that a valid claim? No, I mean, it's absolutely not. I mean, you look at the map of India and you look at where the tribal people live and where the greatest biodiversity is. It's like around the world, 85% of the most biodiverse places in the world are the home of indigenous peoples. And that's because the indigenous people have protected and managed their forests and environments. And, and, and it's an incredible arrogance and actual ra- also racism of environmentalists to to think you know here we've decided this area should be protected therefore we're going to come in and we're going to tell indigenous people we know better and often you know those people should be moved away and evicted and unfortunately that's the mentality of a lot of these conservation organizations and and that's what's what's driven this and actually if they sat down and spoke to the indigenous people you know many of the tribal people in india worship the tiger many you know they view it as as their big brother and these are the people that the conservationists are trying to drive out of the of the homes that they've protected and managed for for countless generations so it doesn't make any sense from a conservation point of view and in fact more than 300 conservationists have spoken out against this court order and challenged it saying not only is it a horrific violation of of people's rights and uh, devastating for the people it's also anti-conservation and will be bad for conservation but unfortunately, the you know your, your traditional colonial conservationists uh, are still got this sort of notion of inviolate spaces that must be empty of people, even if those are the very people that have protected and managed the the forests and and kept them whole all this time. All right. So these organizations, you think, have a a. Uh, conservation mentality, kind of like the one we have in the U.S., where we have national parks and we don't have any yeah. any people there. 
sadly, they're very much following that model. I mean, that, that is the model that um, is, is still being followed absolutely in, in many parts of Asia and Africa. It's a sort of guns and guards approach of, you know, you, de- you declare this area, you know, you recognize this area is, is, is a great area of biodiversity. And, and the first thing you do is kick out the people who've been managing and protecting it. I'm talking with Sophie Grigg, a senior researcher and campaigner for Survival International, and we're discussing the Indian Supreme Court case where they have ordered uh, state governments to evict over a million indigenous families from their homes in the forest. Um, This is such a wide uh, application here. How does it get mixed up in things like the Maoist rebellion in a big section of India, um, mineral rights that, uh, that, that mining companies want to get. Uh, what other factors are at play here? Well, I mean, you talk about mineral rights. One of the great uses of the, of the Forest Rights Act, a, a great example of how it can be used actually to protect the environment f- against uh, the extraction industry is with the, the case of the Dongria Khond, a tribe in, in eastern India, um, who because of their recognition under the Forest Rights Act, were able to reject uh, bauxite mining on their land and, and save in their entire hills from from mining. So, you know, that's, that's an example of where, you know, this sort of thing actually would be, if it properly implemented, would be the best way of protecting um, the forests and, and against uh, those sorts of industries. And unfortunately, you know, this these sorts of... Um, sweeping moves by the central government and, and the court to evict people is going to drive tribal peoples into a rebellion, you know, into the hands of, of, of the Naxal rebellion. Which, and so it's, it's such a dangerous move to, to do that, you know, to, to alienate people and drive them off their land is only going to exacerbate those sort of conflict areas that already exist. Now, what about the – are there further challenges that could be had to this? How do the – is there a legal avenue for people to take? Um, And is there a practical application that is almost impossible? You you can't navigate uh, 8 million people being evicted from a place. Yeah. I mean, well, last Thursday there was a – the the government did actually – have a review of the court order. So what happened, um, because it was, it's actually in the run-up to a general election, which will happen probably in May this year, um, there was a lot, I mean, a huge outcry, as you can imagine, of 8 million people being forcibly evicted in such a short amount of time. Um, so this was taken up by all the opposition leaders, um, and then even by the ruling party itself started to say, okay, Something must be done about this. So last Thursday, there was a, a court, another court hearing. A petition was filed by the central government. And this time, the government, the Ministry of Tribal Affairs did turn up and speak. Um, what they achieved was to get a, a suspension of the order. So it hasn't been reversed. It hasn't been, they didn't challenge the basic concept of evicting so many people. What they said is that all the state governments will have to uh, f- submit a, a, a explanation of, of uh, an examination of whether all of these cases were done with due process or not and, and what which ones were done with due process which of course is impossible with you know eight million people in in such a short space of time but that is what the court has ordered and then it will meet again in july to but the uh, the suggestion is 
after that, the, the states will basically declare which one of ones of these were done with due process and which ones weren't. And then all the ones that the state has decreed <laughs> were done properly will then still be evicted um, uh, after July. I but actually, that you know, the process is done so badly and so corruptly that the the chances of you know the states recognizing that it's the states that have been failing to implement it all this time so it makes no sense to give the states the power to then to decide when when and where they've done this properly or not did the did india's supreme court have any other option here didn't they have another way to go with this or should we blame them for the kind of chaos this has unleashed well i mean i think you have to really blame the both the conservationists who've submitted this <laughs> this appalling um, challenge to the rights of indigenous peoples, and the government for failing to do it, uh, failing to you know defend its own laws. Um, the Supreme Court, in my mind, could have gone a number of other ways. It, it could have thrown out what and, and recognised that the claims being made by the conservationists were you know extremely bogus, and it could also have challenged the central government for not having turned up. It, it could have also called for indigenous people's voices to be heard in this you know to be to accept a hearing where just the petitioners speak and not to examine actually whether um what the views of of indigenous people on the ground were what the realities were you know it, it seems to have failed to have done that in 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 this case Sophie Grigg is the senior researcher and campaigner for Survival International. They protect the rights of indigenous people around the world. Thanks for joining us and talking about India's Supreme Court and their decision to evict 8 million indigenous families from their homes in the forest. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll continue with India and unusual legal doings. We'll talk about the unintended consequences of the transgender person protection rights bill. Stay with us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. On December 17th, India's parliament hurriedly passed the Transgender Persons Protection uh, Rights Bill, and it was meant to respond to a Supreme Court order to respect trans rights. But parliament never consulted India's transgender community, and they have plenty of problems with the bill. With me is Sal Salam. She's a Bangladeshi-American trans activist and Tricone board member here in Chicago. Tricone is an affirming community for queer and trans-identifying uh, South Asians in Chicago. Thanks for joining me, Sal. Thank you for having me. Can you tell me a little about the origins of um, what was going on here? The Supreme Court apparently wanted to um, protect transgender rights, and India has this long history with uh, third gender, and um, it seems like a place that this would be um, pretty straightforward to do this. 
um, but they seem to have botched it up. What happened here? So in 2014, um, the Supreme Court uh, sort of issued this judgment. Uh, it was the NALSA. It was the NALSA case, and there was a judgment in which it directed the government to uh, get more involved in uh, extending rights and protections uh, to the trans community in India. And it's a diverse community at, with diverse needs, uh, including housing, education, um, you know, seats in government. So there's like more self determination and so on. And also protection from violence and penalization of violence against uh, transgender uh, folks in India. So uh, in last year, the government actually passed this bill, or the lower house, the House of People, the Lok Sabha, passed this uh, transgender persons bill um, that was very unpopular with the community because uh, while the original judgment had its own sort of issues, uh, it was sensitive to the needs of the community and was interested in uh, engaging with what the community needed in terms of protections. While this bill uh, is counterintuitive to that and therefore has been very unpopular, you know, trans activists uh, in India, and there's a history of trans activism, especially with the Hijra community. So there's a lot of grassroots activism that's gone on for a very, very long time and has predated sort of the Western LGBTQ movement as we know it. Um, that there's been a lot of dissent. Uh, you know, people have called it a black day, the day that the judgment came out. Uh, the bill uh, was sort of passed, sorry. And um, it's just been very unpopular. One of the things that seems bad about this bill is that it um, gets the medical established involved with certification of transgender identities. Mm -hmm. um, is that necessary? Absolutely not. I think self-determination is crucial, it's vital to trans people surviving and thriving. Uh, you know, every trans person experiences their identity in completely different ways. They might not want to undergo any kind of gender affirming surgery. They might not have access to it, especially in India. You know, uh, there's things like surgery, things like access to uh, hormone therapy. Those are going to be um, expensive and borderline inaccessible for a lot of people and uh, to sort of in, get the medical establishment involved in this sort of uh, in the in the tra you're basi basically getting a certificate saying that you're trans and uh, then you would get trans rights so you'd get trans rights but, which but, but, again which are fairly leave a nebulous. million people out Yep, exactly. Uh, so while so the rights themselves are fairly nebulous at this point, and then uh, the the parameters of the way that one determines or the way this committee is going to determine that someone is trans, uh, those are nebulous as well. And getting medical examiners involved means that there's going to be a medical examination, and then you have government officials. So there's the all the biases and prejudices that come with that. And the NALSA judgment addressed that. It was like people are not educated on this. So trans people have to have the right to self-determine. Now, does this sound like a deliberate thing to um, not have to extend rights to trans people? If you're going to make everybody come in for medical checkups and things to certify, this is almost a, a, uh, an impediment. Like, we don't want to do this. It's absolutely an impediment. And, you know, you can tell from the way the bill was passed, it was passed in a hurry. There was a standing committee review, uh, the findings of which and the recommendations of which were completely ignored. There's an alternative bill that was passed by the Rajya Sabha uh, by an MP called Tirushu Siva, which was more inclusive and more proactive. Uh, uh, the opposition MPs had lots of criticisms of this particular bill that were so, uh, overlooked and shouted down. So there's clearly not really an interest in 
uh, proposing actual amendments uh, and sort of furthering um, protections for trans people in India. It's more about getting this done, putting this out there, and not really making any kind of substantive change. I'm talking with Sal Salam, a Bangladeshi-American trans activist, and we're talking about the Transgender Persons Protection Bill of Rights in uh, India that they passed in December, which has some flaws to it. Another one I wanted to mention, um, it it criminalizes uh, transgender begging. Now, this would sound um, kind of out of left field to a lot of listeners. Why, Why is that important? But in India, it's a big deal. Yep. So especially uh, in the Hijra community, which is this historic community in South Asia, they've existed, they've been mentioned in literature, they've been part of, uh, you know, events and so on. So they've been this marginalized but absolutely visible community uh, in South Asia for a very long time. Begging's been the only way they can make money because there are no legal protections. There's no uh, Employment Protections Act for trans people. And this bill doesn't extend those either. So begging is uh, oftentimes the only avenue for income for a lot of uh, these people. And to criminalize that uh, when there's no actual like um, constitutional criminalization of begging, uh, it feels like an act of violence against trans people. It seems like a crackdown rather than uh, an attempt to extend rights. (laughs) Absolutely. So on one hand, uh, you're not extending protections or any kind of affirmative actions for trans people. On the other hand, you're criminalizing one of the only ways uh, many of the sort of extremely underserved and marginalized uh, members of that population make a living. So it feels like a crackdown. Well, how does the square get circled here? Is there some way to fix this thing? So the bill's going to be uh, looked over in the Rajya Sabha, which is the upper house, and uh, it's definitely going to face some opposition uh, because a lot of uh, trans activists have demanded change, and I think uh, MPs on the opposition or politicians on the uh, uh, on the opposition have um, argued against it, uh, denounced it. So hopefully. Um, it will face uh, a lot of scrutiny when it's being discussed in the upper house. I'm talking with Sal Salam, a Bangladeshi-American trans activist and Tricone board member. Tricone is an affirming community for uh, queer and trans-identifying South Asians in Chicago. And um, I wanted to say a little more about the uh, uh, Hijra community community in India. Explain what it is and, and its long history there. So it's a very complex, nuanced identity, Hijra identity. So it's it's a community with its own hierarchies, its own history. Uh, it includes people who uh, who one would call trans women, uh, but there are also people who are intersex. The people who've uh, you know who are genderqueer, uh, and it's it's a very very diverse community. Um, there, it's been involved in the arts. Uh, it's been part of a lot of rituals and traditions that are uh, that have existed in South Asia, but at the same time. Uh, it's been marginalized and demonized uh, his, you know, for a really long time. A lot of that has to do with uh, the remnants of um, you know, the British Raj, where there was a demonization of the other, including sexual minorities and gender minorities. Uh, and that's lasted. Uh, but this is a community that's been, exi- uh, that's been existent for a really long time, that's been talked about um, in, the, in the arts, it's been talked about in the literature, and uh, it's, it's done a lot of work in terms of activism. 
them for a really, really long time now. And they really are a community. They live together. Mm-hmm. It's not like um, just a, uh, a community that is not together. They, they're living together in part for protection and in part for support and, um, and, and in part to make a living and be able to pool their resources. Absolutely. It's chosen family in its most essential senses. Uh, These are people who've often been kicked out of their homes or uh, who are not able to find work or uh, affirmation or support anywhere else. And uh, they're accepted into this community. Um, And I think there's some conflation of trans identity with hijra identity in uh, in India. And sometimes there's overlap, but they're not exactly the same thing. You know, you can be a trans person and not be part of that community. But because, uh, you know, the hijra community has been visible and been around forever, I think um, Indians have some conception of transness, even in the mainstream, that has not necessarily existed in the West until relatively, relatively recently. But there's also some conflation of all kinds of trans identities with being a hijra. I wanted to talk some about Tricone, um, the organization that you're a board member with. Uh, tell us a bit about it. So uh, Tricone Chicago has existed for um, over 10 years now, and there have been iterations of this kind of community building uh, since the 80s, the 90s. There have been all sorts of activists who's, who've been doing the work. So this is the latest iteration uh, that's building upon the work that al- already exists. Um, so we're, uh, we're an organization that's not-for-profit, that's community-run, that's volunteer-run, that serves to affirm and support uh, folks who are queer and trans, and um, and questioning and are of uh, they see South Asian heritage and their families, their loved ones, their friends. Uh, it's 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 a pretty open space. And what we do is we build community. We create space via uh, events, via discussion groups, via film screenings, uh, potlucks, parties, all sorts of things. Uh, and one of the aims of it is that visibility is important uh, because uh, queerness is something that's not necessarily talked about in uh, the mainstream of Indian society. While that's changing, uh, it's changing quite slowly. So that extends to the Desi or the South Asian diaspora in America and other places. So uh, creating that visibility and holding space for those people who are not necessarily always uh, able to access community in mainstream Desi spaces is one of our goals. Uh, years ago, I talked with Ifti Nassim, who was an uh, activist from the Pakistani community. He was the first openly gay person a lot of people in the Pakistani community really could identify. And he started some of these organizations. How hard fought has it been to get that space you're talking about? I think a lot of that work has been done uh, by that generation, by Ifti's generation. You know, uh, the visibility, putting themselves out there at a time when this conversation wasn't even necessarily uh, part of the mainstream here. And there have been rapid changes in terms of... uh, law and protections in America even, you know, uh, with the repeal of DOMA, with, uh, you know, uh, gay marriage being... uh made like a nationwide accepted thing, I think it's it's easier for us to uh, create that space than it has been for previous generations. So it, it was very hard one for them. And it's not work that's that's necessarily easy, but it's definitely built on the work of the generations of activists and uh, community builders that, that have come before us. Do you have goals with Tricone? Are there things you want to see done yet? 
Yeah, I think getting young people involved, uh, I think uh, getting folks who are maybe second generation, third generation people in colleges and universities, high schools even, like they see folks building that community of uh, queer and trans uh, uh, people of Desi heritage and, you know, uh, having that agency feeling like they have that and like uh, having that chosen family uh, even earlier on because a lot of people find uh, spaces like Tricone in their 20s or in their 30s but you know young people young Desi people can still feel very very isolated even though there's so you know social media there's like pop culture that touches upon queerness and so on but they can still feel um, unrepresented unrepresented and invisible so I feel like extending ourselves to them is definitely a goal. Is that because the, the cone of family is so strong or the, the, the envelope there is pretty wrapped? Yeah, I think uh, with the Desi community, uh, there's lots of diversity, of course, but certain uh, sort of late motifs exist where you're thinking about um, kids having to come out again and again and that coming out being rejected by family. So you're not going to be kicked out of your home or disowned. Your parents are just going to be like, nope, this is not real. This is just a thing that like a trend that you've picked up in the West and so on, even though uh, queerness and transness have been touched upon historically in the arts and culture of South Asia. Uh, but a lot of, uh, you know, people from the older generation treat it as something like a malaise of the West, basically. Um, so there's that. There's also, you know, a refusal to engage and support and have those conversations. Uh, but at the same time, you're still in family. There's not there's not necessarily that widespread idea that if I'm not accepted for who I am, I'm going to strike out on my own because family is definitely sort of a pillar of who you are, of your identity, just as much as sexuality or gender identity are. If people want to get in touch with Tricone, what do they do? Uh, They can uh, go to our website. It's uh, triconechicago.org. That's T-R-I-K-O-N-E, chicago.org. Or uh, they can email us at support at at triconechicago.org. Sal Salam is a Bangladeshi-American trans activist and Tricone Chicago board member. Thanks a lot for joining us. Good talking with you about the bill and about Tricone. Likewise. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about Canada and the trouble that Prime Minister Trudeau is in. He was pressuring the Attorney General not to press charges against an energy contractor. And we'll talk about uh, the biggest trouble that Justin Trudeau has been in yet. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance. And thanks to J. Kyle White Sullivan for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview from WBEZ.